Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. My name is Jordan Guth. I am the host for the second season. And today we are joined by two soundstagers to talk electronic measurements. We have Diego Estan, the electronic measurement specialist at Soundstage, as well as the Soundstage founder, Doug Schneider. So welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Jordan. Glad to be here. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about measuring electronics. And there is actually quite a distinction here between measuring electronics and measuring speakers or headphones or anything like that. Uh, so even right off the bat, there's a whole bunch of questions that I have. But I, I guess to start things off, when we talk about measuring electronics, what kind of things are we actually looking to measure? I can start by just saying kind of how we're set up to measure. And it's it's different than the speaker and headphone measurements. Uh, speaker measurements are done at Canada's National Research Council. We have a, a lab uh, set up at Diego's place where we do the electronics and we use an audio precision APX555, which is the industry standard analyzer, and Diego can fill us in on the other equipment. But when we measure the gear, then we are measuring amplifiers, preamplifiers, and DACs primarily, headphone amplifiers, maybe. Those come under amplifiers. And maybe Diego can tell us about the setup a bit, and then we can get into what we measure and why. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Um, like Doug mentioned, we have an audio precision analyzer with the latest and greatest. That's the gold standard for, for measuring electronics. Um, we are set up to measure analog and digital uh, devices. So the types of things that we would measure are things like distortion, things like noise, uh, signal to noise ratios, intermodulation distortion. And then on the digital side, there's different things that we measure, things like uh, jitter or jitter immunity. Um, so those are kind of the, the, the basics, but there's a bunch of different variations on that. So for example, you can measure uh, distortion just at one frequency, or you can measure distortion as a function of frequency, or you can measure distortion as a function of output. So there's a million different variations, uh, and the measurements are pretty exhaustive. They do take me a while, um, but I think it may be useful for at least some people. And what I can add in, the, the measurements are, are truly objective in a, in a number of ways because of what happens, it's kind of like, I'm like uh, Clint Eastwood's character in The Mule. I pull up to Diego's place, back in to the driveway, open the back. Usually he pulls some boxes out. Sometimes we put some boxes in, but they go there and they come under this clinical situation where they're measured objectively and consistently you can repeat the measurements over and over again for what they do. Now, Diego, you're not typically the one that's writing the, the reviews are, are kind of giving the opinions on them. The measurements are one half of this and then separated entirely is the kind of more subjective uh, review of a product. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I would never, uh, I would never be the one reviewing the product if I'm the one measuring it. And since I'm the one measuring all of the electronics, I don't do the reviews and that's fine by me. I'd, I'm more of an objective guy um, and I'd rather do, I'd honestly rather do the write-up for the measurements than do the, the more subjective writing that's involved with, uh, with the reviews. Now, when, when you do measure these, do you then give the measurements to the authors of the reviews uh, before or, or after, or is it, they, do they find out same day uh, the measurements uh, as they have their pieces written? I think Doug wants to answer this question. Well, yeah, Diego could, but what happens is just like I drop off the equipment and pick it up, he emails me the measurements and then the measurements get formatted online. And I know uh, Dennis Berger, who produces this podcast, he's kind of anxious to see them because he wants to know if they correlated with what he heard. And, and that's a thing. We never, we never uh, show the writer the measurements before they've listened to something because we don't want to bias them. And so what happens is they see them when they're formatted. And that's often pretty close to publishing date. It, it doesn't have to be right at the publishing date, but a lot, of, a lot of times it ends up that way just because they're exhaustive to format. And so at the last minute before everything gets put online, many times the measurements are then put online. And that's when they see them. And then the review doesn't change. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes, sometimes I'll get the piece before the reviewer. So I, I, I collect and make the measurements beforehand and they get the piece. And sometimes it's the other way around. But either way, that's right. They don't actually get to see them until they've you know, done their review. It's all written up. It, is there a lot of instances where what you measure 
and kind of the results that you have objectively are like just totally different than the subjective uh, review, either of SoundSage review or other publication reviews? Um, I would say no, that doesn't happen very often. Um, I, g- I guess the one thing to keep in mind is that with electronics, with, with adequately designed, competently designed electronics, they're mostly pretty transparent, to be, to be honest. Um, for example, they all essentially have ruler flat frequency responses. I mean, there, there could, be, could be variations there in certain, in certain situations, but generally, by and large, ruler flat frequency responses, right? So um, unlike speakers that ha- can have very large frequency response uh, differences. So uh, it's a more interesting question when it comes to speakers, I would say. You know, did, did, I, did I find the speaker bright? And then you can compare to the measurement uh, in, in the anechoic chamber. Um, whereas to say that an electronic component sounded bright to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they're all essentially perfectly flat in terms of, in terms of frequency. And, and generally, if they're competently designed, it's not like they're going to produce enough distortion uh, that you're able to hear noise. Sometimes, yes, that, that, can be, that, that, that does happen where someone might note, yeah, this thing's kind of noisy. You know, I can hear some noise from a few feet away from the speaker and that, that would be corroborated by the measurements for sure. But there was a unique situation just recently with the NAD C3050LE. And what Dennis heard was he had to turn the volume up really, really loud on that unit. And when Diego got it in the lab, he found out that the, the preamp section, uh, there wasn't a faulty device. It's just uh, NAD in the early samples didn't seem to activate the preamp section for enough gain. And he did a firmware update on it. And suddenly there was 12 dB more gain, which was significant. And so there was a situation where Dennis did, hey, for some reason, I got to turn up the volume more than normal on this piece. And there it was in the measurements. Here's exactly why that happened. Yeah, actually, yeah, I discovered the problem um, and I contacted uh, NAD, which is actually something that's important to bring up. If I find an issue with a component where I measure something and it's really significantly different than what the manufacturer will claim, not a little different or something's a little off, but something's really off, then we will contact, I will contact the manufacturer to see what's going on. Uh, In this case, I contacted them and they, they, they acknowledged, yeah, there's a problem. They provided me with a firmware update and it did fix the, the gain problem. So the thing came shipped with no gain at all, zero dB of gain, when there was supposed to be 12 dB of gain. So yeah, it, it made a big difference, especially with the phono input. And that's really important what he brings up. And I, I can't speak for all magazines, but I know some magazines have this policy, even on the listening side, do not contact the manufacturer, which is stupid. Because the manufacturers aren't going to try to swindle you and stuff like that. They've designed the product. And if there's something acting up weird about a product, whether what you're hearing or what we're measuring, just phone them and ask. Yeah. And most of the companies, NAD in particular, outstanding engineers there. And they'll say, oh, they'll look into it and research it and stuff like this. And you want to you want to know that you're reviewing the product the correct way. Well, and you're almost like the first line defense if like they actually have something that is going to be an issue for their their end customers, a publication reviewing it, testing it and saying, hey, is this supposed to behave this way? And we don't hide that. And we don't hide that. You know, Um, it's in our write up, you know, the NAD thing. And it wasn't wasn't really a flaw with the product, just something needed to be activated. And we don't not disclose that. I mean, there it is. Another example of this was a a Bryston. DAC slash preamp. Uh, we got an early sample and we found that it was inverting the phase on the digital side. And Bryston saw the measurements um, and they essentially fixed the problem. So what we do then when we publish the measurements is we don't change them. We show that there's this phase inversion, but we just put an asterisk and say, uh, you know, Bryston has since acknowledged and fixed this problem and current uh, production runs don't have this problem. Okay, so uh, just for my brain, when you say inverting the phase, what does that translate to an actual like speak? Like would I notice, would I notice the difference or is this? Uh... No, it's uh, it basically when say, if the signal is supposed to swing positive, well, then it would swing negative and vice versa. Or if you look at an impulse response, instead of going up, it'll go down and then settle. But as long as both speakers have the same phase inversion, you, you won't hear it. It's a, it's, it. it's a technical thing and you're, it shouldn't be there, but you know, you're not going to hear it. So like not like a make it or break it. This yeah. is where we could get into, could we get into signal to noise ratios? That's another thing that's a hot topic. It's an important measurement, but how much does it matter? 
Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can uh, make the point about pretty much all of the measurements. How much does it matter? What can you hear? How much distortion can you hear? Um, Tell yeah, people to, what a signal-to-noise ratio is, because it's, yeah, it's, it's not a well-understood yeah. term. Yep. Signal-to-noise ratio is the ratio between a signal. Now, the thing is, you have to know at what level that signal is. So if someone just gives you a signal-to-noise ratio, it's almost meaningless. So you need to know either at what voltage or at what power level and into what resistance or what speaker resistance so let's say at 10 watts so signal to noise ratio at 10 watts so we have a reference signal that's 10 watts into 8 ohms and it's the ratio of that signal over the residual noise that's measured when there's no signal coming out of the, the say the amplifier if we're talking about 10 watts um and if it's a say a preamplifier or a dac it would be reference to a, a voltage signal two volts is a pretty common a reference. Uh, so manufacturers will often provide signal to noise ratios based on their rated outputs. So okay. it could be a 100 watt amp, it could be a 50 watt amp, a 200 watt amp, 300 watt amp. So if you really want to compare apples to apples, you kind of have to uh, change that ratio for a signal that is say 10 watts or one watts if you wanted to compare all amps for the same uh, signal amplitude or signal size. And what's a typical signal to noise ratio we see? Just average. Well, a very good signal-to-noise ratio would be something like 120 dB. Um, an average signal-to-noise ratio would be more like 92. So I'm talking about kind of rated output for a rated output, say a 100, 150 watt, 200 watt, 300 watt amplifier. Uh, and something okay would be, you know, 90 to 100. Uh, and then 80 dB lower, you're, that's the kind of signal-to-noise ratio that you would see in a phono preamplifier because they have very high gain and more noise. The more gain you have, the more susceptible you are to noise. So uh, phono preamplifiers, by their nature, will have lower signal-to-noise ratio because they have more noise. But then what can you hear? I think people need to remember kind of how much signal-to-noise ratio you can even get in a, in a given room, right? So there's usually background noise, depends where you live, how quiet your room is right? How quiet the recording is. Um, there's no way you can get 120 dB of actual signal to noise in a, in a regular room. Like and then the question is, would it matter? Because this has been a thing I've been watching online. People will compare all these signal to noise ratios. Now, just know that 120 dB, it, it, uh, Diego said it was very good. It's really good, right? Mm -hmm. But a designer on one of the forums was chiming in, a former designer for one of the companies, electronics designers, and he said, frankly, you don't need more than 60 dB in a, in a real audio setting. And then I mentioned that to Dennis, and he said 70 dB. And I see Diego, because we can see each other doing this, kind of well, shaking his head. What do you think, Diego? Uh, I think 60 dB is not enough. I, I, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to hear hiss or noise from my speakers at the seating position with nothing playing. Would it matter when the music starts playing? Maybe not, but I just wouldn't like it. I wouldn't want to be able to hear anything coming out of my speakers sitting, you know, two meters away. I ran a test once where uh, I encoded a, a digital signal uh, at, at different very low levels to see what, actually what I could hear in my system with the volume set kind of at the typical position that I would use, like rather high, just to see what I could hear. And uh, so I started, you know, a signal at minus 70 dB from full reference, minus 80 dB, minus 90 dB. And I could actually manage just to hear a signal at minus 100 dB. But I'm in a very quiet room in the basement. Like that was with the HVAC shut off. There's absolutely no noise. And I was able to hear just, just the 100 dB signal, which means I could, in theory, hear 100 dB of signal to noise in my room in those conditions. So would you care, though, if your component had a signal to noise ratio of 110 or 122? No, absolutely not. Either, so, either would be fine. And this brings up uh, kind of another interesting thought. Is the recording perfect, right? Is there a hiss in the recording? So let's say you have a perfect signal to noise ratio. Let's say, yeah, 120 you would have to assume that the recording artist that is recording this probably doesn't have the setup that's completely eliminating all of the distortion, all the noise, all of that stuff. So does it matter? Does it actually matter? If you're going to be introducing noise anyways, is, uh, is kind of aiming for that altruistic 120 worth it? When you play uh, an LP, you introduce a lot of noise. Yeah. <laughs> Some people like it. 
Yeah, I think it really depends on the recording. Obviously, older recordings on tape, you can hear the hiss. But, you know, modern digital recordings could be awfully quiet and have inherently a lot of signal noise. But then there's the whole, what's the dynamic range in the recording? The, 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 loudest, the loudest sound versus the quietest sound. So typical pop recordings don't have much dynamic range at all. You know, they might have 10 dB, you know, uh, and then classical recordings might have, I don't know, 30, 40 dB. So that's another, that's another thing to keep in mind. You really need 120 dB of signal to noise when the recording itself only has 10, 20, 40 dB of dynamic range. But we have an interesting story about um, signal to noise measurement, whether it mattered or not, I, I don't know, but it was the RME ADI 2FS digital to analog converter, right? The, um, the little headphone output, the IEM output, it was interesting. Uh, it didn't look like a, a problem in that we measured an extremely high signal to noise ratio. So in other words, a lot of signal, barely any noise, but the manufacturer came back and said, you got an error there. Can you explain that one, Diego? Because it was really interesting. Whether or not it matters, this is our goal is to get it right. Not get it kind of right, but get it right. And the manufacturer was claiming their signal to noise ratio was better than ours. Um, yeah, with this particular uh, headphone output, which uh, which was designed for IEM in-ear monitors, so things that have high sensitivity. The noise was extremely low, but our measurement was something like 3, 4 dB worse than what the manufacturer claimed. So in our measurements, I always supply a table. It's the manufacturer versus our measurements. So I always take what the manufacturers claim, and then I repeat exactly what they claim that they got with the same parameters. Hopefully they provide the parameters, not always. And then I provide our measurements so you can compare directly. What does the manufacturer say? What do we say? And usually it's very close. So in this case, we were 3, 4 dB worse in terms of signal to noise. And uh, I guess uh, an engineer from RME contacted, was it you, Doug? They contacted you? No, I think they contacted you or both of us. They just group emailed us. Maybe, yeah. I, I can't remember now. And so basically he explained that the noise is so low on this that it really challenges the analyzer. So the analyzer is a piece of electronics like anything else, and it has its own noise floor. So this uh, particular component has a noise floor that's similar to the noise floor of oh. the analyzer. So, of course, the two get summed together when you're taking the measurement. Now, it doesn't matter for most components because most components, the noise floor is way above the analyzer's noise floor. Okay, But in this case, it's similar. And that's, so makes it that up. really speaks well for this product because you've got a state-of-the-art analyzer and its own noise out of this product is lower than the analyzer. It's actually turned out to be right around the same level. Uh, but yeah, so it made a difference. It made a difference when you added the noise together. So his way around it was to put a second component in the chain when he measured his device. So another low noise device, then you add the second device, then you subtract away Right, the noise that you got when you added the next device. Okay, that got was it. his solution. So you establish a baseline with the additional device and then you add on top of it. It's like when you need, to, for me, when I need to measure my kid, I basically take my kid onto the scale, do that measurement for the weight and then put the kid down and measure myself and then the difference is how much the kid weighs. Yeah, exactly. So, but I, I, I figured that I could do this by characterizing the self-noise of the analyzer, which I did. And then when I was subtracting away the noise, I still wasn't getting the right answer and I was scratching my head a little bit. So I actually emailed the uh, Audio Precision, the makers of the analyzer, and they're quite helpful. They always answer right away. And they said, well, when you add or subtract noise, you have to do it in quadrature. I'm going to nerd out a little bit here, but when you have two, <laughs> two uncorrelated signals, you can't just add them together because they're not, the, they're just moving around. They're, they're completely random, right? Yeah. So you can't just add them. You have to add them in quadrature, which is the, the square root of the sum of the squares. Okay, that's how you would add the, the two noise components together. And as soon as, he, as, soon as I read that, of course, I, I, I know that. I mean, this, you learn this in high school physics class when you have two... I didn't learn this in high school physics. You, you just going to put that you, in there. You might have. It's like when you do an experiment and you have a scientific measurement and you have uncertainty. If you have two sources of uncertainty, they're both uncorrelated. And if you want to add them together, you have to add them in quadrature. You don't just add them together. The difference is Diego listened in high school. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that might be the difference right there. 
But it, it's also, I also do this in my day job. You know, I deal with uncertainties in, in, in scientific measurements and th- th- why this didn't dawn on me for noise, I don't know. But when you have uncorrelated noise, you can't just add it together. You have to add it together or subtract it away in a certain way. Okay. So anyway, I did this. I, I carefully characterized the noise of the analyzer and then I subtracted it away the right way. And RME's claim was 121 dB of signal to noise and I measured 121.4 dB of signal to noise. So No way. That's Got crazy. the right answer finally. There you go. Now, it, again, bringing this back to the the average person, would that make a difference for the average person? Uh, no. The, the The bottom line is this thing is dead quiet. You can plug okay. in. You can plug in the most sensitive in ear monitors you can imagine. You just won't hear anything out of them, which is well, nice. That's really cool. So even any if noise you have, out of them, you'll only any, hear the sound. Yeah, yeah any noise. Um, which certainly isn't true for all headphone outputs. I mean, a lot of headphone outputs, you won't hear anything, but if you go find the most sensitive earphones you can possibly find, you'll probably hear something, but you, wouldn't with, you wouldn't with this. It's just dead quiet. So that's really interesting. Uh, electronics that measure so quietly that um, you, you wouldn't be able to hear it even on the most sensitive headphones or monitors that you can get. Yeah, and so quietly that they challenge the analyzer. Yeah, challenge the state-of-the-art electronics. Yeah, and and there are other components that challenge the analyzer in terms of distortion as well, which we can talk about. Yeah, well, let's take a break, and that could be what we uh, start up with after the break. And we're back from that short little break. Diego, we left off talking about other measurements. One that I'm curious about is distortion. So can you tell me a little bit about distortion and um, generally what it is and and how you can actually measure that? Sure. Um, I might have to nerd out a little bit again. Um, So distortion, if you you can imagine a a pure oscillating sine wave, okay? We know that music is made up. Just up and down. Just up and down, okay? Yeah, yeah. And, and music is made up of a, of a bunch of these sine waves at different frequencies, and there's harmonics, which I will touch on in a second. So if you can imagine this, this, this pure, pristine, oscillating sine wave of one kilohertz is kind of the standard that you show most measurements around, although other frequencies as well. So um, a perfect sine wave that has no changes to the shape would have no distortion. And okay. the way the analyzer checks for distortion is that it does a what's called a fast Fourier transform on on the waveform. So that's just basically applying some fancy math to change a time-based signal, which is the alternating sine wave over time, to change that into a frequency-based graph that you get to see. So the frequency-based graph will show you the signal peak. So if we're talking about one kilohertz, you'll have a nice peak at one kilohertz. And then if it's not perfect, you'll have harmonics. So you'll have a harmon- the second harmonic would be at two kilohertz. The third harmonic will be at three kilohertz. The fourth harmonic at four kilohertz, et cetera, right? The lower those harmonics are, the purer the sine wave and the less distortion there is. So really distortion is just a sum of those harmonics, how big they are and the sum of them. That's what distortion is. And how is how is distortion introduced into electronics? Like, um, is it is it just the quality? Is it the type? Is it having like the power too close to the input kind of thing? That's a good question. So so having the power too close to the input, that would be that would be a way to get noise. So we can talk okay. about noise. So yeah. so so I guess I, should, I can touch on noise. No, there's two types of noises. There's uncorrelated noise, like I talked about, like just from thermal noise. Like okay. even just a resistor in a circuit will have some noise that's just is it, random. Is it true that electronics have inherent noise, right? At extremely yeah. low level. Yeah, yeah, they do. So, and then you can have correlated noise, which is basically picking up electromagnetic interference from these transformers that are in the power supplies that are sitting inside the electronics. So, you know, in North America, we run at 60 hertz, right? That's yeah. our power supply. And so you will always, almost always see, not always, some designers are very good at suppressing this and some types of power supply suppress them very, very well. But usually you will see at least 
a small peak or a bigger peak at 60 hertz, and then the harmonics of that 60 hertz, 120 hertz, 180 hertz, and you can see it all the way up. So that's the noise part, okay? Right, the, the, the harmonics of the 60 hertz. Yeah. The distortion part is the harmonics of the signal itself. And pretty much any electronic okay. component is going to create some degree of distortion. The analyzer itself has a signal generator, right? It, it has a signal generator to make the signals to feed the thing that I'm testing. The signal generator is not perfect because it's made up of electronics. So it has some distortion, albeit extremely low distortion, but you can see it in these FFT graphs. You can see the little peak at two kilohertz when your signal is one kilohertz and another little peak at three kilohertz. But they're tiny, but they're there. There's some distortion from the analyzer itself. That is to say when I'm feeding the output of the analyzer to the input of the analyzer. So the okay. signal generator to the, to the analyzer. No, no, no piece of electronics in between. I'm just looking at the raw performance of the analyzer. There's still some distortion. Very, very low. And there's some noise. Very, very low. And, I, and what's called crossover distortion, not the crossover of, speaker, of a speaker, but crossover distortion in an amplifier is a thing, right? Yeah, that's when you've got transistors that are turning off and on for the positive and the negative uh, leg of the of the signal. Okay. And when the signal crosses the zero point, there's when the transistors are basically one's turning off and the other one's turning on, that's what's called crossover distortion and it's corrected with feedback. But the point is is that electronics are going to cause distortion one way or the All other. All electronics inherently have some amount of noise some. and some amount of distortion. Absolutely, they do. And the goal is to have as little as possible to get the closest representation of the music as possible. I would say that's my goal, but I, I would imagine that some audiophiles would argue that it's not important and what's important is what it sounds like because you, you, people do claim that devices with high distortion sound good. Like, for example, tubes have high distortion, but they have a certain type of distortion that could be pleasing to the ear. I personally would rather have something that is very low distortion. I just want it clean. So that actually kind of brings me to this other thought, which is there are things that we can measure that we may not be able to necessarily hear, right? We can measure it. We can see that it's amazing. We might not necessarily be able to hear it. Is there things that we can hear that we might not be able to measure? Let me jump in here first, because I do have, I want Diego to them, but I, but I hear this a lot. And I have an issue with things because you'll get, particularly on the, I don't want to blanket because I'm a subjective audiophile and the subjectivist crowd, they'll say, well, I heard this and it didn't show up in the measurements. And my first question is, did you actually hear it? Because many people can go down a rabbit hole. They'll say, oh, I switched this and I heard a difference. Now, if you play two things identically, first time and second time, you'll hear a difference even if they're identical. So before we decide that I can hear it and not measure it, we should decide first, can you hear it? Okay, that's a real thing. And that is often not examined that you actually heard a difference. And a good example is when I sent two identical um, CDs out to a bunch of writers, two thirds of them thought they heard a difference between them. They were identical, bit for bit identical, exactly the same. And they thought they heard a difference. That's not to say there might not be a difference. And I would say the big thing is maybe we don't hear certain things that we measure. They don't matter as much. Or maybe we don't measure everything because Diego can speak to this. His, I think, his measurements are the most exhaustive in the industry. I haven't seen anything as extensive as what he produces for us, but he could do 10 times more. Yeah. Uh, my, my two cents, I, I'm an objectivist. Um, but I'm not an absolutist, so I won't say it's impossible yeah. that there's something that we can hear that, that we're, not that we can't necessarily measure, but that we're not measuring or that we're not aware how to measure. It's possible, but I think it's highly unlikely is my, is my position. Um, and to Doug's point, yeah, most people, when they say, I heard this, I heard that, I doubt that they actually did. And I would be the type of person to say, prove it. And the way you prove it is you have to first level match to 0.1 dB, the two, and then you have to perform an ABX test and you got to score eight out of 10 or better. And if you've done that, then you've proven to me that the, that the difference is real. It's so very scientific. Ad, yeah. And the old adage of trust your ears is just horrible advice. It is, it is really bad advice. You should not trust your ears unless your eyes are closed and you don't know what you're listening to. 
And Diego just scared the hell out of so many audiophiles by saying that. But but it, there is truth because they, you know, the whole blind testing thing and this and that scares the hell out of audiophiles. But what's really interesting about it, particularly with speakers, once you do blind tests, you realize there can be big differences. You can hear the differences, but only when there are differences. Yeah, I should I should have I should have obviously put a caveat there. We're talking about competently designed electronics speakers. You can you can listen sighted. You can trust your ears. There's big differences. You can measure it after and easily corroborate you know what you heard to the measurement. But competently designed electronics is another is another thing altogether. You know, I've I've got an interesting uh, thing. I was in Las Vegas in a cab with some distributor and I had to just tell him he said the stupidest thing imaginable. I said, Hey, did you, you know, did you see these electronics? And he said, yeah. I said, what did you think? Did you listen to me? He said, no. Did you see how bright they are? They'll sound just like that. How bright they are. Like physically, like the design, they were bright. And I said, that's one of the (laughs) stupidest things anybody's ever said to me, but you know what? They do tests and they show and you have a brightly colored thing and you go, oh, that's bright. Something dark sounds warm and chocolatey. You can inject bias into listening tests really, really easily. Yeah, you absolutely can. Yeah, but I I take your point and I don't discount uh, the feel, uh, the the feeling that you get from buying something. I've done it myself. Uh, I I buy based on measurements of course now again yeah. i'm not talking about speakers i got to listen to the speakers but uh, I, I, ba- I buy based on measurements but i also buy based on things like build quality what it looks yeah. like what it what it the, what it feels like uh yeah. the reputation you know um, diego has i've seen his system and unlike those objectivists who have some pretty <laughs> little 250 dollar ramp and these crappy little speakers diego has a pair of focal sopra number ones he has Macintosh gear. <laughs> he has top flight gear because he likes the engineering. He likes the build. You can respect the build. You look at a Macintosh component. You look at a Bryston component. Hey, maybe I can't hear these differences, but I can sure admire the way they're built, where they're built, the warranty behind them, all that. Yeah. And that, that's all perfectly legitimate. Yeah. I, I can imagine that as well. Like, especially with amps, right? Like, they're, some of them are quite large. So if you're going to put this large thing, in a living space or in any space that you're going to spend any amount of time in, you want it to at least look a certain way and, and kind of give you that nice feeling. You don't want to be looking at um, kind of a, I don't know, an ugly box or something like that. Completely agree. And with amplifiers, there can be huge differences in the sense of if an amplifier is not powering a speaker well, if it's not providing the current necessary and stuff, you can hear those differences. That those are Those are readily audible. Yeah, I, and I'll agree with that. With amplifiers, uh, you can. So assuming that the amplifier is competently designed and it's operating well within its performance envelope and it can drive the speakers that you want to listen to at the levels that you want and it's still well within its linear range, far from clipping, that's when I would say that there's no audible difference. But if you're driving it hard past the performance envelope, uh, your speakers are a very difficult load and the, the amplifier has a hard time with you know small loads, then yes, you can hear those differences. So in this kind of, there's there's two trains of thought here. One is uh, I'm thinking about the speakers and what makes a speaker hard to drive. And the other kind of uh, thought process that I have is, is the opposite true? Can there be um, electronics that are too powerful for the set of speakers that you have? And can that have a negative impact as well? Uh, so a, diff- a speaker that's difficult to drive would be one who's... Uh, uh, impedance or resist let's just call it resistance drops very low at certain frequencies so you know when you see uh, specs for a speaker you'll see eight ohm nominal or four ohm nominal yep. that's pretty typical eight being probably more typical but it's not eight at all frequencies they all have varying frequency varying resistance or impedance with frequency. So at one frequency, it could be 8 ohms, but at another frequency, it could be 5 ohms. Another frequency, it could be 16 ohms, right? And this is something that we measure with, when we measure speakers at the NRC. We'll plot the, uh, the impedance curve versus frequency. Okay. So a speaker that's difficult to drive would be one that drops down into the 2 ohms. Sometimes some of them drop even below 2 ohms. And it's even worse if that dip happens in the bass region because that's where there's more musical energy. And you, okay. in recordings and you require more power. So the lower the resistance, the more current is required from the amplifier, right, to, to maintain that signal. 
right? Yeah. And that's what makes it difficult for an amplifier. And for an amplifier to be able to do this, it needs to have a big and robust power supply to deliver the current, and typically a lot of output transistor devices to be able to handle all that current and all the heat dissipation. And your other question was, can you have too much power? I mean, the, the short answer is no, but of course, yes, if you, if you, if you turn the volume up too high. If you go <laughs> and, to the extreme, right? Yeah, if you, if, you, if you don't treat your ears very well, you'll also mistreat the speakers, and you could potentially. But it's certainly more dangerous to have an underpowered powered amplifier uh, driving a speaker because you could potentially drive it into clipping. And when you clip, you chop off the, the, the signal, right? That sine wave that you're supposed to have. Well, you cut it off, you make an edge and making that edge creates a bunch of harmonics, high frequency harmonics. And that goes right to your tweeter, which is, which is not built to handle a lot of power. So it's definitely worse to have low powered amplification than, than too much power for your, for your speaker. So if I was an audiophile starting out and I was debating whether I should invest in a higher quality speaker or higher quality amps, knowing that this was going to be like a stepping stone product, it would be fine to like step into a much more powerful amp than I had speakers for currently, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, you could go ahead and, and, and buy a very powerful amp and not have to worry about it. And then you can buy whatever speakers you like. And you know oh. what? I got that advice from a, a store owner. It was really good advice in the 80s. Speakers make the biggest difference. And he said, but you know what you want to do first? Buy the best, most powerful amplifier you can. Because what will happen is you'll constantly be upgrading your speakers and you'll never upgrade that amp. Interesting. Yeah, amplifier technology. Well. A certain type of amplifier class technology hasn't changed much, honestly, in the last several decades. There's been some improvements, which we can talk about, the very low distortion class D amplifier um, that uh, I wanted to bring up, um, if, if you'd like. That would be the, uh, the EigenTact uh, amplifier module. We got an early sample, Doug got one, and it was uh, not not for sale, but it was kind of a prototype, I believe, Doug, right? Yeah, from Purify Audio, and I'll just give just a brief background. Uh, Peter Lingdorf, who I call the Elon Musk of Danish hi-fi, well, European <laughs> hi-fi, because he, he seems to own all these audio companies, hired some of the best and brightest engineers, including um, Lars Risbo and Bruno Putzis and others to create audio technologies to be used in other companies' products. And one of the things they first came up with was what they called the Eigentact amplifier module. And it's a class D, it's a type of amplifier class. Diego can explain it, but that's getting into the weeds. But it performs extraordinarily well. And that's what Peter, when I met him in Poland and he was talking about it, and that's why we got one of the engineering samples, it, he really wanted to get one to us first. Yeah, uh, we actually, I measured it fairly recently because uh, Doug got it a while ago, but then recently decided, you know, we should probably measure it, you know, and uh, we can publish the measurements because right. the amplifier and, uh, You know what? I haven't published those measurements and you just reminded me. And it was because we didn't have your lab set up when I got that amp. So we gave it to an engineer in Toronto to measure it and we published that. But then we wanted it published from our lab with our current battery of measurements. Right. And because it had become popular, it's been used in a few different NAD amplifiers recently that we measured. So I did the full suite of measurements and boy, this thing is impressive. So in total harmonic distortion um, at the 10 watt kind of standard that I that I use point uh, zero 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 four. So four zeros. Um, and just to compare, that is scratching the, the, the level of the analyzer. The analyzer's uh, signal generator THD number is 0 0.0002. So four zeros and a two versus four zeros and a four. Okay, so just close. Very minor differences. Yeah, there's a little bit more, but extremely low uh, distortion and, and noise as well. Extremely low noise as well. Uh, 125 dB of signal to noise ratio. This is A weighted uh, at 200 watts. Just remarkable. What does eight weighted mean? A A, a weighted. A the, weighted. Letter, the letter A. Uh, it, the A weighting is just a way to kind of mimic the way the, the human hearing uh, operates. So, you know, your 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 ears are more sensitive in the middle frequencies and, and less at high and less at low. So basically, it's it's a type of weighing that you put that you apply to the noise to kind of mimic what you would hear if you were listening to the noise. Okay. Okay. And it's just an industry standard. You know, a lot of manufacturers just, just use A weighting. But anyway, the, the really, really good signal to noise. This thing is dead quiet uh, and the distortion is extremely low. And, and it has been used in a few amplifiers now. And it, I think it brings up a good 
question that, that we can broach is, is, it, is this thing going to commodify high-end amplifiers? Are, are high-end amplifiers just going to just put one in their amp and make a nice big metal case, sexy case, right, with, all, with, uh, with the meters or whatever they want, but they just put this module inside and they know it. They know it's going to be perfectly transparent, it's going to measure great, and it's going to sound great. I think it's already starting, but I don't know, if, Doug, if you have kind of uh, thoughts on that. Yeah, I want to put into perspective those distortion figures. Dennis uh, Berger on Soundstage Access wrote an interesting article about measurements, and he cited some, I'll put this in the show notes when we publish this, um, measurements of how much just distortion we can hear. And I think it was, I'm um, going off the top of my head, I'm not looking at it, but I think it was 4% for jazz or something like that, 1% or 2% for another type of music, and 0.1% for pure sine waves in other words a pure tone uh you know um anything below 0.1 percent you won't hear but 0.1 percent you might hear so diego is saying this thing's got 0.0004 yeah yeah three zeros four zeros each time you you add one of those zeros that's like a lot so this thing is so far below and again it's beyond the thresholds if 0.1 percent like in dennis's article is with a sine wave you'll never hear the noise and distortion but it's kind of cool to have an amplifier and i i've got that engineering sample and i've got the nad still with me the m33 that's based on it it's really cool to have an amp that's that quiet and in ways that affordable. I think the NAD amp is $3,500 or so, less than $4,000 anyway, in the U.S. And it's basically as good as you can get if, 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 if you want purely transparent sound. Now, some people do love some distortion, some tube sound. We know that tubes can produce higher distortion. And some people say it makes a more euphonic and pleasing sound. And I've got a amplifier that i'm taking to diego a 300 b based amp puts out a whopping 15 watts okay that he's going to be getting next week or the week after to measure but i want him to listen to it first and see hey does it sound good it will have a different sound for sure um so yeah well and and back to that purify eigentact amp module i think doug you mentioned that it's going to be it's it's getting put into or has been put into a t plus a high-end amplifier yeah 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 not again it's not ultra expensive and dennis wrote about that in the article he put that in there they have it in a mono block and in a stereo amp and they put their own spin on it with their own power supply and i think they have a damping factor adjustment and inherently though they're it's got low noise low distortion again you can see the amp modules performance in their own published specs and i hope we get one of those amps in to measure as well yeah so i think this might become more common with uh with high-end manufacturers i mean if you've got this thing that's out there that's basically perfectly transparent why not use it exactly Will all the companies use it or like would some companies look at that and say we could do better or we could do different I think the different is the thing. Some will say we can do better, but I presented that question to, I won't say the company because he didn't say it to me on the record. He said it casually, but he was one that he's been one of the top electronics designers for decades and he recently retired. He said the problem with the thing like that is it kind of makes the amp into a commodity and suddenly the manufacturers have trouble differentiating themselves with it. And differentiation on the market is not an insignificant thing. You have to make yourself oh. stand up. Now, with the Purify thing, you can throw your own power supply in there like T plus A did. They got the damping factor adjustment. So they've put a spin on it. And I think that's what has to be done. But yes, you run the risk of making it into a commodity. Yeah. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing is up for debate, I suppose. I think I think it's a good thing as an objectivist. Just have a good standard that's out there and just a buy standard. based on looks and builds. Standard. And, yeah. You know what? I've always I've always maintained the two great standards. Well, one great standard has always been the Bryston 4B, rock solid class A B amplifier. This is actually a great standard for class D amplifiers. Let's just for my brain, class A, class A B, and class D. When we're talking about amplifiers, I understand that one of them is uh, digital. Is that class D? One yeah. of them we don't use at all, which is like class B. Give, give me some background on amps here. Yeah, you, I mean, you got it basically right. Class D is a, is a digitally driven amplifier. Okay. Um, class A and class AB. Well, not digitally driven. It's on-off, on-off state, right? That's what you mean. I mean, yeah, I mean the control of it is 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 digital. It's on off, on off, on off. Of course, the output is analog. It has to be okay. Um, but a class A and class AB amplifier 
is just a typical linear amplifier. You put in a small signal, you get it out a big signal. They use transistors at the output stage, other transistors to drive the voltage up in the first stage. And the class A versus class AB is just the amount of biasing, how 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 on are the transistors in the output stage? Yeah. So if, if they're all the way on, uh, it's class A. People think it sounds better, but it's quite wasteful as far as energy. So that means whether you have a signal there or not, they're just always on. Yeah. They're always There's always current flowing through those output transistors. Class AB is kind of a hybrid between class A and class B. Class B is that the, actually the signal turns on the transistor. So if you got no signal, the transistors are off completely. So it could be used in telecommunications where you need efficiency. Class AB is, you know, always a little on, but not all the way on. Okay. Right. And then you might still have a little bit of crossover distortion that you can correct with feedback. And that's the most common type of traditional amplifier out there. Class AB. Class AB. Class AB. Yeah. Now, it, again, going back for uh, the beginning audio enthusiast, are you going to be able to tell the difference? Would you would you kind of say no to buying a specific amp because it's class D instead of class AB? So uh, personally, I would not say no uh, just because it's a class D amplifier. I mean, technically the eigentac I would be, I think classified as a class D. I think it operates a little differently. The problem I have with a lot of cheaper class D amplifiers is that they have high output impedance, so a low damping factor, and that depending on the speaker that you use and its impedance, you can actually hear the differences at high frequencies. It might sound slightly brighter or slightly less bright, and it depends on the speaker. So uh-huh. ideally, you want an amplifier that has an extremely low output impedance, which means a high damping factor, so that every, any differences in impedance in the speaker doesn't, doesn't really change the yeah, frequency response. Yeah, it doesn't translate response. right away. Yeah. And there's something that can be seen in the measurements, because, well, if you just yeah. measure one thing, if you just do it into an 8-ohm load, you won't see that variation. But once you do it into a 4-ohm load, 2-ohm load, you see the variations. Yeah, and a real speaker, which is something that we do, and I think people appreciate. We, we measure frequency response not only into an 8-ohm resistive dummy load and a 4-ohm resistive dummy load, but also a real speaker to show yeah. the frequency response when a real speaker is hooked up to, to the amplifier. And then, you know, and how much does distortion matter? I can go to the other extreme and talk about the, the amplifier that I measured with the highest distortion. This was the uh, Atoll IN200. Uh, it had 0.3% uh, total harmonic distortion at one kilohertz. So I think Doug mentioned, you know, 0.1, you, you might be able to hear 0.1 in a pure test tone. Probably yeah. not music, though. But I, I, the general rule of thumb, though, is that, you know, the, your amplifier is you're probably not going to be able to hear the distortion if your amplifier's got 0.1 or less. Okay. So this thing measured 0.3, but at 20 kilohertz, as high as 3%. Oh, wow. Although it's harder to hear, you know, distortion at 20. I can't hear 20 kilohertz at all anymore. (laughs) I'm too old. Um, But anyway, 0.3% at 1 kilohertz. So this kind of intrigued me. Uh, You know, compared to your typical amplifier, there was, you know... um, a thousand, ten thousand percent more distortion, right? Yeah. So I decided to take it down and listen and see if I could if I could hear a difference. Um, again, I'm an, I'm an objectivist, so uh, most of the time now, after many years of doing this, when I carefully level match two competently designed components, I don't hear a difference with my eyes open when I know which is which. Okay. Yeah. So I did that. I carefully level matched uh, with a voltmeter, not an SPL meter. You got to use a voltmeter to get a good level matching. And actually, I thought I could hear a difference between this amp and and my Macintosh amp. So, all right, next step is to do a blind, single blind ABX test. So I asked my lovely wife, Kathleen, uh, if she would be so kind as to do the switching for me. So basically, really, you should do a full 10 tests, but I thought we should just do five at first, not to drive her crazy, just to see how well I do with five (laughs) tests, right? So she randomly decides which one is she going to play, A or B right? The Atoll or the Macintosh five different times. I don't know which is which, but I'm supposed to yeah, correctly yeah. identify after having spent much time listening to both. And I think I know what the difference is, right? Well, it was an epic fail because I got one out of five, right? Which, okay. is, wor- which is worse than just chance, yeah. right? <laughs> right. So there you go. As soon as I it was completely blind, uh, even though this thing has relatively high distortion for a solid state amplifier, like pretty high, the Macintosh is quite low. Um, yeah. I couldn't tell. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to the idea where there's other elements to this, to the products that you decide to purchase, than just measurements. 
However, the measurements are kind of setting a bar, setting the standard to say, well, people took the care to at least get this kind of, I'm, I'm going to call it a noise floor, but that's not the correct term. Noise and distortion. I mean, both, both those are the and two big things. And I just took the care. I look at the measurements. Where I, What I glean most from the measurements is competence. Diego mentioned power supply noise. If you see a modern amplifier that has a ton of power supply noise, like an obscene amount, then you know that maybe this isn't a competently designed amplifier. If you see obscene distortion and the circuit doesn't justify it, like if you got a no feedback amplifier, you're going to have higher distortion. But if it's got obscene distortion or some anomaly or something, it's not just poor measuring, it might be incompetent. And that's also what I look for in speaker measurements. Does the person or team who designed it know what they're doing? And I don't know if we've ever come across anything incompetent yet, have we, Diego? I don't think so. No. No. And I don't want to claim that that Atoll amp is incompetently designed. Some no, manufacturers no, it's actually have a different low feedback amp. It's actually a low feedback amplifier. And that's the it, reason. It hit its power rating. Uh, we don't have to get into what feedback means, but as soon as you got super low feedback, you got higher distortion because feedback's used to correct distortion. Right, Diego? That's right. So I don't, I don't want to say it's incompetent design, not at all. And different manufacturers might have different design philosophies. That's all. And, and in their case, maybe they, they don't care. Well, they, I can probably say they don't care so much about distortion. It's on the high side, but maybe they just say, well, we, we listen and we, and it is what it sounds like that matters to us. That's, that's fine. Uh, it was still hitting, it, it, let's just say there weren't any claims that that uh, were unjustified. They weren't making any claims, and then I took a measurement and said, "Oh no, that's not what uh, what they actually claimed." Everything was everything was above board. Uh, they made the power ratings. And I'll tell you this: uh, Jay Lee did a video about that amp. Um, Dan Kong reviewed that amp, and there are many people around the world who are at all fans. But I want to throw in one other. Actually, we didn't talk about this measurement that I think we're the only ones that do it that Diego does, and it affects integrated amplifiers and preamplifiers. And this is a huge thing that you can hear. Channel balance. Is the left channel identical to the right channel when you turn the volume control? And you know what? You'll hear that. If, if, if it's off a dB or two to one side, you're going to hear that with a skewing to one side. And Diego does a measurement on the integrated amplifiers because they have volume controls and preamplifiers. And that's one of the most important things, I think, that people should look at. Yeah, this was something when Doug and I were first discussing, what are we going to do for these measurements? What are we going to include? I'm pretty sure Doug had this at the top of his list. It wasn't on my radar, to be honest, because uh, I've never seen it in any other publication. Not to say that it's not out there, but I just hadn't seen it. And basically, we, I produce a table. Anytime there's a volume control with a device, I produce a table and I show the channel deviation. So the, the difference between the left and the right channel in dB at different volume positions from minimum to maximum and a bunch of steps along the way. Oh. Okay. And this is quite important to Doug and I agree if it's, if it's enough, like one or two dB, you could hear a skewing of the center image. Yeah. And if you go to some, well, older components that use potentiometers versus these modern control methods. And I mean, it's a big thing to me because I had components when I was younger and in the past at very low volume levels, one channel would start playing before the other one would. That's common for that's common, right? And then oh, they get more accurate in the middle. And there used to be this thing in the eighties and nineties was use your volume in the between the nine and three o'clock position because that's where it's most accurate, right, Diego? With yeah. those old potentiometers. And so to me, channel balance, in fact, I look at the channel balance just on the outputs when he does the left and right channel for everything. It should be the same on both sides. Yeah. Of course. Anytime you have a volume control, it's not going to be perfect. Although I can, I'll mention one device that was essentially perfect. Um, but you have different ways to implement volume. You have a potentiometer, which is basically like a wiper scraping along a resistive element. Okay. So you got you got cheap potentiometers because you have to vary resistance basically. And, and those were used way. all the time in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, and even up till today. Even up to today. So you have cheap potentiometers that can have, you know, up to a couple dB of channel imbalance, especially at the lower part of the volume. Then you've got very good quality potentiometers that you can still find in high-end gear that you've got to pay a lot of money for that have better tracking, better balance between the, the channels. But most commonly today would be integrated circuits that have transistors and resistor ladders inside the integrated circuit. And you switch, you basically switch the transistors on and off to switch the resistors in and out of the circuit. And that's okay. how you, that's how you control the volume. So it's digitally controlled. You're turning these switches on or off, but it's still in the analog domain. 
So the signal is, is passing through different resistors and different transistor switches. That's most common. You can get pretty good uh, channel balance that way. Then you can build a discrete version of that, which would be with relays and resistors. So high-end gear tend to have that. But then you have this, this one manufacturer that uses this one volume control technology that I was just floored by. This is AccuPhase out of Japan. Okay. And uh, I measured the C2850 preamp. And they have a different way of doing it. Now, I don't know exactly how it works, but just basically reading their literature, that what they say is they convert the voltage signal into a current in 16 different levels, and they can turn these levels off and on. So that gives you up to 65,536 steps, 16 bits. They only, use 200, they only use 251 steps. It would be kind of insane to use all of those steps. So they, they implement 251 steps in their volume. So the one, first, the one great thing about it was... In the low part of the range, it was 5 dB increments. So because you want bigger changes in the low part of the volume. Yeah, yeah. And, as, and as you increase, right, it would get smaller. And when you get near the top of the range, it would be 0.1 dB changes. Very, very small. You can't even hear 0.1 dB. But very, very small changes at the very top end. Just exactly what, what you would want. To but fine the tune everything. Yes. But the amazing part was the channel balance or imbalance. It was perfect. It was the worst I measured was 0. 0.0006 dB. And that was at the low part of the range. Okay. And most of the ways, most of the way through, it was, you know, 0. 0.000. I couldn't measure an imbalance with the, with the audio precision. And to give you an, an idea of how good that is, if you were to build a traditional volume control with resistors to, to get that, you would need something like 0.01% tolerance on your resistors. Yikes which I don't even know if you can buy. Like good resistors are 1% and very good tolerance resistors are 0.1%, but you'd need something in the 0.01% tolerance range to get this. It was essentially a perfect volume control. So, uh, and maybe this is a, a dumb question, but when you're talking about channel imbalance, could your speakers themselves, because a okay. left and right speaker obviously might have slight differences in their construction stuff oh, could the speakers yeah. also be an issue oh yeah, oh, yeah. and then can do they correct this, okay that? no and i no. can speak to this okay because i measured speakers for over 20 years really good manufacturers try to get them within a one db window this is why i also tell people hey you know uh two speakers that look like they measure the same should sound the same and i'm like no way because manufacturers have trouble making Two identical speakers sound the same because you get variations. Um, really good manufacturers try to get within a 1 dB window across the frequency range. 1 okay. dB possibly. Poor speakers, and we've measured, could be 3 dB difference. And, and there are people who are like, oh, the image is shifted to the left. My my. Um, now imagine you have a 1 dB shift on the left on your crappy volume control, and you have a 3 dB shift to the left at a certain frequency on your speaker. Suddenly you got 4 dB to the left. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's realistic. It could happen. Okay. It could happen. So you want everything as close as possible. And electronics are relatively easy. Maybe Diego can speak to why speakers are really hard to get exactly right. Then there's the room too, right? I mean, if your room oh, is not yeah. symmetrical, then you can have more room gain on one side of the room than the other. And then that could affect how much uh, output you're getting from one speaker. Well, it's not do the any speaker of these itself. Amps, do any of these amps or electronics actually have the ability to uh, change? Yes, it's the, called the balance control. The balance control and in yeah. more modern, yeah. modern, so the old balance control is to compensate for that sort of stuff. Okay, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah. makes sense. And room correction, which will look oh, at the output yeah, of the room speakers correction. and try to vary that and make it even. Yeah. That would be the modern way of doing it. Yeah, but the old way was just the volume, the, sorry, the, the balance control. I and mean, we've all seen it, right? It was kind of crude. Uh, you wouldn't be able to get, you know, 0.1 dB increments. You'd probably just move it a little and you're probably at, at a dB or so. Uh, but yeah, that was the traditional way. And now you can do room correction. So with everything that we've talked about so far, uh, whether it be the channel balance, which is definitely the eye opener for me this episode, I didn't even consider that being a thing, to distortion, to noise, you need really good equipment and really good analyzers to do that. Um, Diego, tell me a little bit uh, more about some of the equipment and, and kind of what makes it so good. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the, the resolution capabilities of the analyzer when you're looking at different frequencies, remember earlier I talked about the FFT, the fast Fourier transform, and it's what you do to kind of plot uh, over the frequency range where the, the signals are lying, where the harmonics are lying. 
Um, so the resolution of the analyzer is really good. So an example I have here is a preamp that I measured one time, the SPL Director Mark II, uh, had a very low distortion, but s some noise, not high noise, but some noise. And when I looked at the FFT for one kilohertz, so you got that signal peak at one kilohertz, and then you have the harmonics of the signal, two kilohertz, three kilohertz, four kilohertz, et cetera, et cetera. So when you just kind of glance at the FFT, it looks like there's a three kilohertz peak, which would be the third harmonic, right? It would be distortion. It would be the third harmonic of the one kilohertz signal. That would be considered total harmonic distortion when you just glance at it. But actually, when you zoom in, you can actually see that the peak at exactly three kilohertz is a lot lower and that the peak I was seeing zoomed out was at 3.06 kilohertz which is the 51st power supply related noise harmonic. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you, if you take 60 hertz 51 times, it's the 51st harmonic of the 60 hertz. So it's actually noise. So, so the, the, this thing has the resolution to differentiate between the distortion peak at the 3 kilohertz, which was much, much, much lower and buried in a bunch of other uh, noise-related harmonics. Yeah. And so you need something with a lot of resolution to be able to do that. But this analyzer has the resolution to show peaks all the way up past 20 kilohertz from that 60 kilohertz uh, initial, initial peak. Interesting. And, just, and it's not a concern. The peaks are low in level. Yeah, yeah. But this analyzer allows you to see them. It's like a super powered microscope. You're seeing yeah. the finer grain and the finer details. And that's yeah. not uncommon. The, the engineer who uh, measured the eigentact at the beginning said when he moved to the APX555, he was seeing power supply stuff he never saw before. And so the designers are a bit at the mercy of the resolution of the equipment. Yeah. Interesting. Now, there is also people that really don't like measurements. Like, don't, don't show me things that show that it's different. Like, this is what it is. That's my belief. Yeah. Here's the thing. If I was to err on one side, I don't like what's happening on uh, uh, certain forums where it's all about the measurements. They just look at the measurements and they decide what something sounds like based on the measurements. They haven't even listened to the product. And then you get the extreme where somebody says, um, I don't want to look at the measurements. I just want to listen to it. Well, if I had to pick one of those two, I'd pick the listening to it because ultimately you have to take the thing home and listen to it. You're not, you have to enjoy it. Yeah, you're not buying it to please a t piece of test gear. You do have to listen to it. And I think it was Steve Guttenberg said once in one of his things, and this is where I, I agreed with him. I said to Brent Butterworth, I'm going to agree with Steve on something. Why don't you just listen to it? Why don't you just listen to it? Now, of course, you don't have to take the extremes. You come somewhere in the middle. And this is what I tell people. The measurements are what they are. You don't have to look at them or you can look at them. You know, when we traveled to um, England and the Netherlands, we came back and got the wickedest cold, all three of us, right, yeah. Jordan? Yeah, Jesus. and mine lingered for, I never go to the doctor, <laughs> ever. And I went to the doctor because it lingered for two weeks, and she said, you got a cold. And I'm like, okay, that's really what it was. But she said, you're the kind of guy who never comes to the doctor, and I'll never see you again if you don't get sick, so I'm going to get you to do a bunch of blood tests. And I'm like, why? And she said, just to see where you're at. And I'm like, I feel fine. She said, you'll never come back just to see where you're at. And I'm a little nervous to go get my blood test because I don't really want to see where I'm at. Because what if something <laughs> comes up? That I don't know? <laughs> this is the exact same thing with measurements. What upsets many of what I'll call the anti-measurement people is they might see something in the measurements they don't really like. And suddenly that might rattle them. Ignorance like, is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Likewise... The guys who are all about the measurements and they'll look at a speaker measurement in particular and say, well, that can't sound good. And then you listen to it and it sounds great. Uh oh, we've got, you know, a really cognitive dissonance here. There's yeah. I don't like what I see. I just say to people who are really anti measurement. Hey, I actually side more with listening because ultimately you got to use it. But they are what they are. Just accept it and you know what the way we do measurements of speakers at nrc and the way diego measures electronics in the lab it's repeatable it's not like it changes one day to the next they're very repeatable they are what they are live with it now you don't want to live with it if you've got a wicked channel imbalance you want to get rid of that gear <laughs> you want to sell it as quickly as possible because that means you got a piece of <laughs> but other than that hey if it's got a little higher distortion or this or that it is what it is awesome and 
to close off this episode, I'm gonna ask a question that I ask to everyone that comes on this. Diego, if you had to put on uh, a couple different songs or a record, let's say, what would be the soundtrack to your life that you use uh, when you're enjoying music? I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go Canadian, okay? Because I'm Canadian, so uh, I'm gonna put uh, Colin James up there, Blue Rodeo, Tragically Hip. I'm gonna nice. put those three up there. Awesome, Doug. I, I don't think I've actually asked you this before. What's the soundtrack to your life? What, what's uh, well, the see, jams? The one album that jumps out at me is because I um, read the book called Making Rumors. I've revisited Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and everybody should listen to that album at least 30 times to memorize it. It is a phenomenal <laughs> album. It is really an epic album, and, and the book Making Rumors is fantastic, but the making of that album. But if I were to pick something modern, Lana Del Rey is like the oh, best good. new thing. When you listen to her recordings, um, the Norman Effin Rockwell one onwards, they're just phenomenal. She really makes great albums. So that's my number one today. I need to add some more, uh, more tunes to my playlist. All right. Thank you both gentlemen. Uh, until next time, take care, everyone. All the best. Thank you. Thank you.